We love supporting and promoting the creators of musical theater throughout the world. And we would love to have your support as well. Go to musicaltheaterradio.com and click on the Become a Patron button because a supportive community is a strong community. Welcome back to another episode of Be Our Guest here on Musical Theater Radio. I am your host, as always, Jean-Paul Jovanoff. Today, we are going to be talking to the creators of Top of the Heap, a show which we play on the station on our sampler platter, as well as the creators of Doug Live. Yes, the TV show, Doug. Uh, and we're going to learn a little bit of what it's like to work for the mouse. Hopefully, we'll get some secrets, maybe. Who knows? I want to welcome to the show, Jeff Loden and Bill Squire. Jeff, Bill, welcome. Hi, thanks for having us. Awesome. So I want to get to know you guys before we delve into all that other stuff a little bit. So Jeff, we're going to start with you. We want to get Jeff's bio in 30 seconds. Who is Jeff in 30 seconds? Jeff's an old man. (laughs) I've been in New York for 40 something years. I am a music director, um, composer, arranger. Bill and I met at the BMI Musical Theater Workshop three decades ago, hit it off, started writing together. We are now on our ninth show. I also have some other shows I've written and have productions slated for this fall, if any everything holds up. Wonderful. And, and Bill, yourself in 30 seconds. Uh, <laughs> well, much like Jeff, <laughs> I've been around quite a while. Um, actually been involved in musical theater, in writing for musical theater as far back as I was thinking about it this morning, high school, or I, I think I wrote my first uh, original musical, although original in quotes because it, it used um, existing music. Uh, <laughs> as a, as a one-act version of uh, the Hansel and Gretel tale called Witchy! Exclamation <laughs> point. <laughs> um, and so, uh, you know, I've, I'm a writer for a lot of different media. I also uh, write for print, um, have done some television work uh, in the past, uh, but my passion has always been musical theater. And yes, as Jeff said, we met in the BMI workshop. Um, interestingly, didn't work together the first year, um, but one of our uh, compatriots in the workshop said to us, you guys should really do something together. And so the second year we collaborated on a project. Um, in the second year of the workshop, you do something that lasts the full uh, year. Um, and uh, that turned into Top of the Heap, uh, ultimately. Nice. Um, and we took it from there. Uh, one little trivia fact about Jeff and I, we were born a day apart. We have both have made hmm. birthdays a day apart. How about that? And our, and our sons are 10 ah, days yeah. apart. Yeah. <laughs> There, the stars aligned, and there's no way you two can know that. Let's just let's be honest with this. Now, b- before we we get into um, top of the heap and everything, and before your these parallel lines of your lives converged, I want to know a little bit about you know about yourself. So, Jeff, were, were you always into musical theater, and and were you uh, is a musical theater background, or were you the black sheep of the family? You were you were that artsy oh. guy. Oh, I was definitely the black sheep of my family, a lawyer, a doctor. My father sold insurance. My mother could not sing at all. And yet I've been playing piano for over 16 years. And acting so, too. He was an actor. So, and I was a child actor. Um, but they all sort of supported me. 
And so they think I'm nuts, but <laughs> always supported me. And then when I came to New York and started music directing and met the first person I wrote shows with, there was a point where my father came up and asked me, do I want to take over his multi-million dollar business? And all I have to do is go back to Miami and learn insurance. And I said, no, dad, I'm so sorry. And that was the, the end of that. But I know they lived vicarious through my failures and successes and came to all of our openings. And then I, I made commercials for 15 years. So had that odd little left turn in my career, but ultimately came back to the theater because this is what I love. Do you think you could have, do you have a, a um, affinity for numbers and things like that? If you had said, you know what, I'm going into it. Do you think yes. you, do you have that? Oh, okay. So you have that there, skill set. There's a parallel, I think that can't be denied between music and math. Oh, for yeah, sure. for sure. And, you know, it, it always, just like when I sat down at the piano the first time and my parents bought me a little Magnus chord organ <laughs> where, you know, the buttons on the side and I stopped use, using the buttons when I was three years old because I could just put my fingers and the chords made sense. Yeah. <laughs> the same with math. I, I was always really fine in math. Of course, I've forgotten it all, and, <laughs> of you know, but that's okay. Nice. Yes, and, I Bill, could. and Bill yourself, were you, were you the black sheep or was that a family thing? The, the you know, again, uh, much like Jeff, um, there had been people in um, my uh, family background that were interested in the arts and uh, like uh, and an aunt uh, who was very active in, you know, her local community theater. Uh, but my parents uh, and brothers themselves were none of them were really uh, inclined that way. Um, I will give my father a bit of credit, though, um, for starting me down this path, uh, because the one thing that we shared uh, was a love for Gilbert and Sullivan operettas nice and so he had a full set of the doily cart um, recordings of that i used to absolutely love and of course that really got me started uh, got my interest in writing lyrics um, because obviously the, the lyrics in those shows are so literate and so funny and so you know witty um, that uh, you know i fell in love with it from that point um, but again they were very supportive no one ever questioned uh my decision making about uh, going into this as, as a career. Um, and actually, uh, you know, I, I look at all my family, everybody is very independent in the types of things that they've gone into. They're all their own bosses and make their own hours. So that part of it, I think everybody got right away. <laughs> so you're both on this, this path of the arts. You, you can see it, you're going. You're parallel. That moment when the two of you met each other um like you said you you weren't paired together right at the beginning right. so, yeah so what happened <laughs> uh well i mean uh, if you know the bmi workshop the, the whole first um year is a series of um exercises um some people come in as composers and lyricists and and you know uh, don't collaborate with anyone else um but most of the workshop is made up of lyricists and composers that are looking for collaborators. Mm -hmm. uh, and so 
you're paired with different people on each of the things that you do with the idea being that you'll find people that uh, you work well with and hopefully go on from there. Um, and just by chance, we never worked together, but we got to see a lot of each other's work all year long. Um, and one of the folks who was a writer uh, who, who wrote both lyrics and, and composed uh, a lady by the name of Lynn Portis, both kind of pulled us aside at the second year approach and said, you guys should really think about working together. I think you really would get along well. Um, I had a couple of different projects that I was looking at um, and I talked to three different people and Jeff was the only person who responded to the project that I was the most interested in writing. Um, and so we said, yeah, well, let's, let's give it a try and uh, took it from there. Uh, I knew I had my hands full, however, with him because the very first song that we wrote for the show, um, I sweated over for you know like a week and a half. I brought it into the workshop. I gave a copy of it to Jeff and said, you know, here, here's something to take a look at, see what you could do. Walked home and he was calling me because he had written it in the cab on his way home <laughs> and already had a melody that uh, pretty much, correct me if I'm wrong, is exists uh, to this day, uh, you know, as, changed, as it was originally changed the note. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so we were off to a good start. Nice. And and Jeff, when when uh, um, Bill approached you and send this stuff, you know, sometimes uh, it's you know you're you're meeting someone for the first time and you're starting to work with someone. Was it was it an easy collaboration? Like, is it not just Bill? But do you have a hard time working with other people, or is it do you find it easy? Um, or do you like to work on your own or, or how did you find that experience? Well, I'll start with the last question. I yeah. despise working on my own. <laughs> writing is a very solitary, even with a collaborator, yeah. we are rarely, if ever in the same room, particularly this year, mm -hmm. but you know, so I am handed a set of lyrics and sometimes inspiration just comes. Sometimes I may look at something, work for a little bit and put it aside for three months until I'm ready to deal with that, you know, that motion. Collaborations about personalities and respect and being open to criticism, you know, because I do not, I don't know, I never expect everything I write to be perfect. I would almost be sad if nothing was changed because there's always a way to make something better. Yeah. And the nature of collaboration is, you know, being open to suggestions both ways. Now, very often Bill, when he's coming up with a lyric, has a song in his mind, whether it be something he's concocted or pick a show that the moment of that song at that for what he's writing seems to fit so he'll write it with that form that general form and then send it to me i never know what that song is yeah. and very often what i come up with is so different than that song and it's you know which which is always surprising for him and sometimes it fits. Sometimes he needs to change his lyrics to match that. And sometimes he says, no, that's not quite right. Yeah. And, I'll, and I'll try something else. I have 
I've worked, I've written one show with another person who would do it basically the same way. And if my music didn't in some form match that song in his head, he couldn't accept it. And I real, and you know, it's, you've got, he's got to be open-minded to hear the, the song for the first time. Yeah, I mean, I love responding to that, what he comes up with, because, you know, I, I almost know his music ideas in terms of composition are going to be fresher than anything that I think of. Because, yes, a lot of times it'll either be just a tune I make up in my head or, um, you know, uh, something that's similar to something else that basically just serves as a placekeeper and reminds me of what the, you know, stresses are and the, the uh, you know, the lyric. Um, and uh, um, as long as what he comes up with still makes sense dramatically for the moment, I'm, I'm happy to go back and re and rewrite everything. Um, now, that other show that I spoke about, I'm very pleased with the end result. I think the show turned out tremendous, but I did not, I, he and I said, we're not right for each other, mm -hmm. it, you know. Yep. It's 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 a lot more than hey is that a good song for sure. for sure. Then again, Gilbert and Sullivan hated each other's guts. That's well toward the end they did indeed. Yeah, yeah. you know, <laughs> Bill and I thirty years later still talk. I <laughs> <laughs> have for, one. <laughs> for, for the truth, before we get to stop of the heat, just what is the process for you? Because you know, as you know, Richard Rogers. He worked with Hart and he worked with Hammerstein and, and they were completely different ways. You know, one wrote the lyrics and then they did the music, wrote the lyrics and then the music. How is it with you guys? Do you, is it, do you do it in a certain direction? Like one writes the lyrics and then give it to music or do you Jeff sometimes create the music and give it to Bill or is it kind of just a, however works, works. If, if, if I can start it, I think generally I love to have lyrics in front of me okay. because that gives me an idea of character their language, their cadence, it's very helpful. And so, you know, it helps me to figure out my way into the music. However, in most shows, there are songs that are not about character, they're about environment, they're about creating an atmosphere. And I love when I can start, I start with the music in that, moment and then he responds to that and who knows where you're going to end up yeah but i've found in almost every show we've written and i've written there are two three numbers that the music or the idea of the music came first yeah i mean if um especially if it's a, if it's something in a ballad form um i don't like to uh, other than you know, have us have some idea about what the moment's about, and maybe maybe even just a lyric hook. Um, I don't like to define that too much for Jeff because it's that's all about heart, and I want him to just be able to just explode musically. Um, what's also tricky is, uh, you know, especially when you're dealing with very text-heavy lyrics, um, it's so hard to keep yourself from getting into like a very boxy shape in terms of lyrics so it starts getting a little da dump da dump da dump da dump da dump da dump um and uh so it's it's hard it's hard to work against that if you're only working lyrics first but if you have some sense of what the musical shape is going to be that is a huge plus because it prevents you from 
just falling into the same patterns all the same. So now let's get to top of the heap that that first show. Tell us a little bit about top of the heap and and uh, you know what it is and and where it's gone and all that fun stuff. Well, top of the heap was a show that was inspired by. Um, uh, these kind of gritty 1950s, um, I won't say film noir, but um, very, very edgy kind of pieces like A Face in the Crowd or A Sweet Smell of Success or uh, The Big Knife. Um, these, uh, as, uh, Richard Enquist, who was the moderator of uh, BMI at the time, um, uh, said it, there were all these pieces that just sounded like, you know, the language sounded, we thought sounded so realistic and gritty. And then of course he said, but of course it was nothing, but, <laughs> <laughs> but it had such, you know, style and panache that um, from a, 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 a lyric and book writing perspective, um, I really wanted to play with it. And uh, for Jeff, it just suggested so many cool things musically um, that 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 really got us going. I don't know if you want to talk about that a little bit, Jeff. Well, I, you know, aside from my musical theater gods, George Gershwin being one of them. You know, I loved jazz. You know, I I was I was a jazz player and a rock musician mm -hmm. in my former life, and so I was you know, playing in a lot of bands and playing a lot of styles of music, I understood the power of jazz and it, it breaks a lot of the form of musical theater, which is very, very nice. And, you know, so I really glommed on to the idea of it, including that first song I wrote in the cab which is unlike anything I've ever written before and really kind of, it put its mark on what kind of show this was going to be. Yeah, very much so. Musically. Nice. And so when was, when did Top of the Heap come out? When was that? Um, we started writing it in uh, 1991. Um, and I think the first uh, real production that we had of it uh, happened. Jeez. Oh, well, the show was invited yeah. by the Dramatist Guild. Oh it, yeah. It was. It was. We put it out there, and it was accepted as one of the new works of mm. 1992. So yeah. that was our very first reading. Okay. And yeah. you know, got a great feedback from you know, these wonderful professionals, including Peter Stone and- Martin Sharnan was there. I forget who else. I forget who else. Like yeah. Mary Rogers might have been there. Wow. Um, and, you know, it, it made us feel like, oh, we're on a real quick path. Yeah. Yeah. And then <laughs> reality sets in. <laughs> well, tell us about reality because there's other listeners out here who've written shows <laughs> and- you know, sometimes need the dose of reality. <laughs> well, it, you know, that, that, that was the era of, of um, you know, big development. Everybody was getting into let's develop uh, new shows. Um, and so the, we went through a series of festivals and concert readings. Uh, 
you know, all over the country, out in Rockford, Illinois, we did the first, one of our first big readings. Um, that actually ultimately led to a production of a different show. Um, lots of stuff in New York. Uh, at one point, we were chosen for the global search for new musicals over in Cardiff, Wales, which uh, ran for a number of years. And that was a really fun experience because we got to work with West End actors um, in the show who had amazingly good American accents, I have to say. <laughs> Occasional word here and there, uh, but man, were they, were they sharp. Um, we got the uh, 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 Director's Choice Award from, uh, uh, was it National Alliance for Music Theater? And so we got to do another big uh, reading in New York. Um, and that finally led to the first production uh, at the Gallery Players out in Brooklyn. Um, uh, and they did a beautiful job with it. Very, very short rehearsal period. So we basically just have to slam it up and, and get it going. Um, uh, and then uh, a couple of other regional uh, productions after that. But yeah, it's a lot of making demos, you know, uh, putting together readings, yeah. uh, getting it out there, entering it in everything you possibly could. Um, I mean, what's interesting is the first big uh, festival reading we had was in a festival that was really a, a play festival. They weren't actually soliciting musicals. And for some reason, we'd ended up submitting it. Um, and one of their board members got a hold of it and said, we really have to do this, you know, even though we weren't planning on doing any musicals. Um, and so they rounded up um, a gentleman who was a, a head of a big academic theater there because he had a lot of experience doing it. Um, and, and he uh, was able to put the reading together. And that led to uh, a nice relationship with him and developing uh, Revels, which is a, a one of our next uh, really big shows. Nice. So you've got this show uh, under your belt. Let's uh, let's jump ahead to the 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 mouse <laughs> because I'm really curious about how that you guys got to do that. So you wrote Doug live, right? So Jeff, how how did that come about? That came about when I had, God bless, yet another reading of a different show, and that Bill was not involved in. And somebody approached me after that reading and asked me if I would go to breakfast with him the next day. And I have never been a part of a power breakfast until that moment. <laughs> so I met him at a Midtown hotel and over breakfast, he mentioned he had these friends who were animators and were working on a cartoon called Doug. And would I be interested in applying for the job as composer yeah. and I said I've never heard of Doug let me ask my collaborator about it and he had said is is the the person whose show I was doing the only person I write with and I said no so I called Bill and I said have you ever heard of a cartoon named Doug he said I watch Doug every day with my son Levi every day. <laughs> and, and actually, I, if I could correct one little thing, he said, <laughs> I, there, there's this animated show on Nickelodeon that they want to do it. I said, oh, is it Doug? Right. So, <laughs> so Bill and I, uh, you know, we joined this process. I believe there were five writing teams who were going to submit. Yeah. Um, we 
Bill took ideas from the different shows and we can write this and then we can write this. I think we wrote three songs. Yeah. We brought in a, a, an act, two actors to help us present them. Unbeknownst to us, one of the actors was the voice on Doug, was one of the voices on Doug. Oh, wow. So when we he walked in the room, Jim and David were like, Eddie, what are you doing here? <laughs> and so it kind of gave us a leg up. We presented and within the day got the call, would you like to write this? Wow. And we, we wrote it thinking we were writing a Nickelodeon live off-Broadway show. Huh. And in the process of writing it, the, their company was bought out by Disney. Oh, wow. And so the project just went poof because they said Disney doesn't do off-Broadway. This was the days of right before Lion King and Beauty and the Beast was going full guns and they said we don't do off-Broadway but someone in the parks department said we'll do the show because they were looking for the synergy between the parks and Disney television wow and that's how Doug Live was born so for for our for our listeners tell us what Jeff tell us what Doug Live was Doug Live was a 33 minute show to get, <laughs> to get people back out to the park <laughs> that incorporated five live actors in different colors because the characters on Doug were of different colors and a dog. There was a live actor playing the dog. And aside from those five, everyone else in the show was animated. So there was interaction between Mm -hmm. the live actors and the huge animated um, cast behind them. And the screen, the wall was, had to be 30 feet high and 60 feet wide. It was stunning. There were also uh, uh, guest actors from the, selected from the the audience that played a couple of characters in one scene too. Really? Yeah. That's very cool. So, Bill, what was it like to see um, your work in a Disney park? You're sitting there, you're in Disney, and this is your stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, I've never had a show uh, and and haven't since that involved so much merchandising afterwards. (laughs) I had like like, the Doug lunchbox, uh, we had Doug action figures, we had uh, Doug keychains, you name it. Um, I mean, it really was exciting because, uh, first of all, what was a little different about the show for Disney was, as we were writing it, at one point we said, well, when are we going to workshop the material? And they were like, workshop? We we usually just go right from, you know, you write it to spending $4 million on it. Um, And we said, well, you know, why why don't we just, can we come down and we'll just try it out? So they actually arranged a workshop for us. in Walt Disney World in one of their studios uh, down there. And we went down and spent uh, the better part of a week putting it together with some of their performers who were already working on the property. So that alone was a blast because you walked out of your rehearsal and you were in the middle of Disney World and you could go on, you know, the rides and eat at, uh, you know, it's in, in the uh, Italian section or in the Tahitian section or whatever. I mean, it was really wild. Um, 
And, uh, and then we, we actually had to put this uh, piece up for Michael Eisner and all of his um, uh, <laughs> besuited minions who showed up uh, to, to see the show. And that, that alone was an experience because uh, you could tell the parks people were so nervous about having him come in down mm -hmm. to the fact that they were like cleaning. And at one point I saw a guy with a level, like leveling the thermostat on the wall. Like this is like, it was wow. kind of, <laughs> yeah. Um, and he showed up with probably about 25 uh, other people in suits and they all sat in this long phalanx. Uh, and then we put on our, you know, what you would expect a, a little workshop of the show was like five actors running around and us, Jeff banging away on the piano and making, you know, sound effects with our mouths. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that all went very well, obviously. Um, and we were able to move on to the, the production stage. Uh, uh, what was really fun was once the show was up and running, um that uh we were able to go down and see it jeff and i flew in uh to orlando one day from new york we got caught like the the earliest flight in the morning uh flew down to orlando saw the show how many times jeff three or four times i uh, probably saw it three times before our flight had to leave yeah so we got to see the show three times in a row it's had lunch in the middle it's long flew home in new york and we were in bed at, you know by 11 o'clock at night <laughs> Uh, but we got to experience it with an audience and with all the interactive stuff and all the bells and whistles of the, the, you know, the amazing animation that they put into it and great orchestra recorded orchestrations. Um, and it's been a it's been a lovely thing over the years because we hear from people all the time who are either involved in the show or who saw the show and are looking for the music um, or they have some connection to it in their past. And, you know, Jeff's run into actors at auditions who, uh, you know, looked at his uh, background and were like, oh, Doug Live, you, you wrote Doug Live? I, I work at a conservatory in New York working with young actors. And one day someone walked in, my new cast member, and he had been smart enough to look up the director and the music director and choreographer he's gonna be working with and unfortunately, most people don't do that, and they really should to know who you're in the room with. And he saw that I had written Doug live, and he told me in rehearsal that he not only did he see the show a dozen times, it's the show that made him want to be an actor. Wow. Which I found so touching. And he's now a producer. He, he's now on the other side, you know, do, producing and directing his own shows, which is really wonderful. That's incredible. The, the Doug experience must have been just fantastic. Um, well, one more memorable thing happened that sure. when we did the workshop for the production, uh, as I mentioned, Michael Eisner was there to see it and they had slated two things for him to see that night. Our little presentation and then they were opening this giant spectacular water-based entertainment thing called Phantasmic, I believe it was called. Oh, wow. um, and he was supposed to see that. And so we were invited to go see the other you know, thing after, after we were done with our presentation. So uh, first of all, it was just very cool because you went out into 
Walt Disney World in the middle of the night. There was nobody there. You got onto trams and we're zipping through <laughs> the whole park. And we get to this big amphitheater where Fantasmic is. And it's this gigantic show that involved all the Disney villains and this big island that was surrounded by a moat and all these boats would come around and there was a giant you know, paddle wheeler at one oh, point wow. that was filled with Disney villains. And at the end of the show, the mountain opens up and a huge dragon comes out and Mickey Mouse dressed you know, in his uh, Sorcerer's Apprentice garb comes out and starts to battle with uh, the dragon. And at one point he, uh, goes out and he walks across the water out into the middle of the water and turns and vanquishes the, the, the uh, dragon. And this whole thing ends and we're sitting a couple rows behind Michael Eisner and he turns around and he's going, I don't know, you know, about having Mickey walking on water is, uh, you know, uh, maybe he could just sort of slotch out or something because, you know, is anybody here born again? Because uh, I don't want to read about this in the New York Times. <laughs> not the sure how they ended up resolving that. But The next day, Mickey did not walk on the water. <laughs> I was told that. Also, what Bill didn't say is the it was a water show. The yeah. dragon was all water. What? Oh, it was my. It was a stunning show and it just things would come up wow. and so Mickey was on the water slaying the dragon That's and the cool. dragon exploded in water and but Mickey had to walk out. They had a slightly larger budget than we <laughs> just a little bit. <laughs> so <clears throat> let me just jump ahead. Um, so what have you guys been doing lately? Um, are you working on anything? Uh, has the pandemic? you know, slowed you down or you've had now time to, you know, connect even virtually because I mean, like you said, it, Jeff, it, you don't it, necessarily need to be in the same room to, it, it, to work on stuff. It got in the way of um, our, one of our most recent projects. Um, we were asked to write a, um, a musical for young audiences uh, based on a picture book mm -hmm. uh, called Merrily Manly and Her Magnificent Manners. Um, and the show was developed. We'd done some out-of-town debuts uh, of it at theaters uh, up here in the Northeast. And we're at the point where um, the producer attached to it wanted to bring it into New York for a run for a while. And that was scheduled to happen in the fall of 2020. Well, obviously everything you know, uh, was put on hold. Uh, I mean, we recently heard that it looks like uh, it's back to being scheduled for the fall of, of this year. So we shall see, mm. you know, if things uh, pan out and the theater comes back into life in New York. Um, but uh, other projects, uh, you know, we've, we've toyed with a few things, uh, played around with some stuff for a review that uh, ultimately um, went a different direction. Um, Jeff's been working on a whole bunch of things uh, uh, that uh, I'm sure he'd like to talk about. Well, as a music director, I've been, I was just involved with Paper Mill Playhouse, mm. which is about to put out a streaming version of a show from 20 years ago off Broadway. They did it there and filmed it. Oh, wow. And I was musical director and conductor. So I actually had to act <laughs> to get up off the piano walk with a microphone and talk <laughs> and i thought i was going to die but we'll see it 
I think it, it actually comes out today or tomorrow and okay. we'll see if I look like an idiot. Um, <laughs> I have another, uh, another show I've written with an old friend had a production at the Casamanana theater in Fort Worth, Texas, a couple of falls ago. They've asked us to write the sequel to that, wow. which is slated to be, uh, the pinup girl Christmas is supposed to go down to the Casa Manana this November. I'll believe it when I, yeah. when I'm on the plane going down <laughs> and you know, it's, we have to live in optimism. Yeah. You know, I've actually never been busier than I've been this last year. Mm. And my conservatory work, we just took remote, which is three times the work that I do instead of a three or four hour rehearsal in the evening, I've, I'm creating tracks for nine hours a day. But I get to, I first of all, I've been paid through this pandemic, which is no yeah. small feat and for it, I'll be forever grateful and have had a lot of time to write, yeah. which is wonderful. One, I mean, one of the fun things, the pandemic related that we were able to do, um, was a couple of radio adaptations mm -hmm. of earlier shows like Top of the Heap was one of them. Um, and that was a lot of fun because uh, we were able to combine the show's original demos with uh, new live performances uh, of the book scenes and sort of condensed versions of the show, uh, which was really wild for Top of the Heap because many of the people who had recorded the demos originally came back to play the same roles, you know, 30 years later, uh, and on the radio, they could get away with it. Yeah. <laughs> we had a dream cast. It was a blast. It was like a reunion show. <laughs> That's fantastic. I know the pandemic's been obviously terrible, but the things we've been able to take out of it. I was talking to a, another gentleman yesterday, and it, we're, it, there's going to be a musical baby boom um, for the next few years, because everybody's been able to you know, create um, some stuff because they've had time. So uh, congratulations on being able to find something to do and, and expand the conservatory and, and everything that you've done already. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much, uh, Bill and Jeff, for coming on. Top of the Heap sounds great. I love playing it on the station. So <laughs> thank you for uh, letting me do that. All right. Well, um, we love what you do too. <laughs> uh, thank you so much. Um, Thank you, Jeff, uh, Bill. I will promote the heck out of your stuff. And if you ever have anything new coming out, you let me know and we will put it on. I'll send you another show soon. <laughs> and if anyone wants to look us up, it's lodenandsquire.com. You can you can hear samplings of a lot of our works. How many shows are we on? This is, I think, our ninth <laughs> show together. It's, yeah, including uh, the most recent ones, nine. Well, we'll definitely be sharing that on our social media and on our website. And well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. No problem. All right. We were just speaking with uh, Jeff Loden and Bill Squire here on Be Our Guest. Tune in next week as we'll be talking to another guest or guests about their life, love, and passion that is musical theater. I am your host as always, Jean-Paul Yovanoff, and I will see you when I see you. We love supporting and promoting the creators of musical theater throughout the world, and we would love to have your support as well.
Go to musicaltheaterradio.com and click on the Become a Patron button because a supportive community is a strong community.